With a piece in my hand and bloodshot eyes, I walk to the water for a last goodbye. He begs so much, it clouded my mind. One thing's clear, the man's gotta die. Man makes right, so he said, when he held all the keys over our head. I lived in that grip, but now he'll learn at the end with the tables turned. Lord, forgive me Take me on Down the river where the kids can't find a red hand to center On Where the grave can't cry out Cause I don't wrong Down the river with a hand on a colt And a finger on the trigger And before dawn they try to find The riverbank caught a boat sap, took off like a hurricane With spotless dogs in the whole nine yards of breathing down my neck and breathing hard Two weeks in a wild chase across the highways, mountains over seven states Found a man at the harbor, said that he could take me across the ocean somewhere far away Lord, forgive me Take me on down the river where the kids can't find the red in the center. Jumping up the ledge, but not before I catch to the chest. Now there's blood and water filling up my lungs. Blood and water filling up my lungs. My heart is beating like a fading drum. Lord, forgive me, here I come. It take me.
All right. I have them. I tracked I tracked them down. I snagged them and I got them. I've got Sal McCognano and let us bring him in. All right. Bam. And you are unmuted. Hey, how's it going, Doc? Sage, good to see you, man. I'm great to be back with you again. I appreciate it. I don't know if I'm the myth as much as just the just the man. And sometimes I doubt I'm that. So no, I appreciate no. it. No, no. In this household, I, we were just having a, a conversation back, and we'll talk about this uh, backstage. Is that uh, you were just on Nova, right? And my wife was watching Nova in regards to the Evergrande, and she's like, "Oh, do you know about this?" And then she called me in there, and, and we're watching. And then you came up, right? And I'm like, "Yeah, that's you know, I know him. You know, that's that's Sal. I've I've interviewed him." She literally stopped it. She stopped the video. She turned around and looked at me, and she says, "Interview who?" I'm like, "Him, right? He's been on my show." And um, she's like, no, he's a no. I'm like, yes, she's I, I had to go in, pull the back one, show it again. And um, she she literally did not believe me that that you're that you're on my show because Nova's like your favorite show. So it it's it was like uh, pretty impressive. She was impressed with me f- for like a, probably a day and a half, actually. Which, <laughs> so, but yeah, I want to thank you for that opportunity. But, yeah, how did that um how did that go? I want to talk about that first and that interview with Nova and, and all that. How was that? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was really incredible. I mean, again, you know, I, I, everything for my channel started with ever given. I mean, I mean, it really did. You know, I had a YouTube channel that had 300 subscribers and three views the day before ever given went ashore. And then I got asked to go on BBC world, talk about ever given. And it started a crazy six days for me where I was on, I can't even tell you how many news programs, and it, it, you know, I started doing some videos a little bit. It propelled the channel up. But then afterwards, I was like, OK, I had my, you know, I had my 15 minutes of fame. That's it. It was six right. days. It was, you know, it's over. I'm going to, you know, it, it's gone and everything. But man, that that was a story that just kept on going. And I got called by it was actually uh, an offshoot of the BBC working with Nova and PBS that was doing it over in England. And so they asked me if I'd be willing to do it. And I said, sure. And they came to my office in North Carolina. They got a crew that came together and we did a live stream with me and the producer for about three and a half hours, set up the room, get everything set and long batch of questions. I mean, we went through questions over and over again and it's not just answering the questions. It's how you answer them and and what it looks like and getting everything right. And uh, it it was a lot of fun. It was tiring. At the end of it, you're like, okay, I've talked about this enough. I I don't want to talk about this boat ever again, I think, after this moment. (laughs) And then then you wait for it to come out. And so I'm happy it's out now on PBS. Yeah, absolutely. And if you haven't seen it, check it out. He, you know, it's, it's a, the whole story, the whole situation uh, was something that was a big deal. I mean, it tied up, it tied up traffic basically for a long period of time and affected us how we are now still. Yep, it was you know another incident in the long chain of never-ending black swans that we keep getting dive bombed by <laughs> recently, and you know that one shut the Suez for six days, and uh, never really saw that happen except for you got to go back to the the, the six-day six war, you know when it was shut for years uh, because of the uh, Egyptians and Israelis fighting each other right along the canal there, so it was a major event and really just kind of really captured everyone's imagination of how dependent we are on that ocean trade. Right. And so if you don't know, uh, let me give you just for somebody who hasn't neutered my channel. Let's if you want to give a quick background and, and who you are, what you do and everything else. Um, and then we'll jump into some other questions I have. Sure. So I was a merchant mariner, sailed ships for seven years, worked ashore and afloat, did that. And then I went into academia. So I got a master's in maritime history and nautical archaeology and then a Ph.D. in military naval history. So I'm an associate professor down at Campbell University in North Carolina. 
I teach courses in maritime security and maritime history. And then I'm also an adjunct with the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, where I teach a course in maritime industry policy. And then I contribute to G Captain and Freight Waves on industry news and, and largely shipping, obviously, is my big focus. And then, like I said, back in March of last year, I started uh, What's Going On With Shipping, my uh, YouTube channel. Right, which uh, there is a link, and my mods will be dropping that as we go. So if you're not subscribed to that, uh, hook them up like a tow truck. It's free. It's a it's a you know, click of a button. Um, if you don't learn from this guy, then it's I don't know what to tell you. We've got issues. Uh, but be honest, he, he does. He breaks it down. He goes over it, and it's it's a great channel to click on and just kind of have him break it down for you because it's that that type of information that we kind of need is that ability for people to explain it so we can understand it because. As we're going to dive into, we've got a lot of things going on that need to be. I get a lot of these questions because if I'm in shipping and also um, obviously not, you know, I do land shipping and stuff, but we've got a lot of things going on. So one of the first things I did want to uh, have you jump into, and it's going to be kind of off the wall, is Merchant Marine. What exactly is a Merchant Marine and what do they fall? Because I've got I, I've tried to explain it so many times. So I just I'm thinking I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to ask him when he comes on because I've explained it in numerous, you know, in other emails. But what exactly is their their role and what is a Merchant Marine? It's, it's funny you ask that, Sage, because I had somebody send me a note the other day. It's like the same exact thing. And I get those all the time. It's like, you know what? I don't think I've ever explained it really fully on my channel. So I'm doing a video on it. So, yeah, you know, it, it's a unique thing because, again, you, it sounds like it's like a military organization. It sounds like it's a formal structure. It really isn't. It, it's basically everyone who works in the commercial side of, of shipping, whether it's inland waterways, along the coast, or international shipping. And it's a couple of things, even though there's a U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, there's really no such thing as the U.S. Merchant Marine. So you get your license through the Coast Guard. Mm -hmm. So what the best is the best analogy I would have to it is it's like we're airline pilots, but we do it with ships. You know, so if you if you're a pilot, you know, you're always a pilot and it doesn't matter if you fly for for United or Eastern or whatever airline you fly for. It's the same thing with commercial shipping. So, you know, that guy who's working on a tugboat, the, the, the girl working on a fishing boat or in a ferry or the crew taking a vessel trans-Pacific delivering containers, they're all in the Merchant Marine. They have their Coast Guard Merchant Marine documentation. They have to have their licenses. They have to have all the required training necessary. And then they have to be employed by a company or union to do it. But in time of war, it's a unique thing because it's in the front lines. It can be nationalized as it was in the world wars. And there's, there's a, a, a organization known as the U S maritime service that you can technically be pulled into that can be established under the Navy, kind of like the way the coast guard becomes part of the Navy in time of war, the merchant Marine can become part of the Navy in time of war or part of this entity, what's called the maritime service so yeah it's a really nebulous it's unique because again we have a service academy for not a service it's the only job occupation that has a federal academy associated with it yeah and that was uh, because now because people have to understand is logistics a lot of that is a huge role like supplying if we were to go to type conflict that supplies are key so you want to make sure the people bringing those supplies know how to do it get it there and and make it all kind of roll and we don't one of the merchant marines in regards to the ships we're we were kind of behind on some of our ships we let a lot of that we're not up to date let's just say with the best merchant marine ships at this point are we 
No, you know, one of the things that a lot of people don't know, for example, is like one out of five Navy ships, there's about 300 Navy ships, about one out of five of them have merchant Mariner crews on board. So they have civilian crews on board. Those are mainly the auxiliaries, the logistics ships, the refueling ships, the cargo ships. That's what they have. But our commercial merchant Marine has declined, especially the deep ocean merchant Marine. So if you look, you know, at the end of World War One, World War Two, excuse me, come out with the biggest Navy in the world. Biggest merchant marine in the world. We're hauling 63% of the world's cargo. Today, we're number 21 in the world. You know, we haul about 0.4% of, oh. you know, world trade. Uh, we, we're really, really tiny in terms of that. Now, there's some areas where we're really good in offshore. You know, we're talking about wind. We're talking about uh, oil production. We're talking about coastal. We're good. Uh, even tugs and, 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 and smaller craft were great in, but in terms of big draft ocean going vessels, we are pale in comparison. You know, the biggest shipbuilders in the world today isn't the United States. It's China, Korea, and Japan. They build 93% of the world ships. And again, we build just 0.2%. It's, it's a really small uh, uh, minority of ships that we build. And so that means that We've seen this decline happen. And again, you know, if you're a small nation that doesn't have a global presence, it doesn't really matter how your goods get transported. But in time of national emergency conflict, it does matter because, you know, you really have to rely on your crews, your ships to go places because not everybody agrees with our foreign policy. Not everybody agrees with what we do. And at times we need our own ships to do that. And what we're finding ourselves in is a very precarious position you know a lot of the supply chain issue that we saw you know that that big huge backlog off la and long beach that we saw develop last year it still exists still 30 ships waiting to get in you know that's carried on nine container lines which control 85 percent of the world trade all nine of those companies are overseas based and they're in three alliances and we have very little control over them and that does not help us <laughs> When we're in situations like this. So I'm glad you brought that up. So I'm going to bring up another thing that I'm, I'm constantly. Let's add this to stream here. Um, this is something that I'm constantly shown. Uh, people send me uh, pictures of this. I mean, now that I've lost ships. And what they say is they say, uh, look at all these. Am I not showing the ships here? What happened here? Turn that back on. They say, look at all these ships. Look at them all. There's no way we can get them all unloaded. And I mean, just right here. And. They, these are not all container ships. No, no. Uh, filters are your friend. And, and you know, what that shows, that's AIS. That shows every ship that's, that's transponding, everything from a fishing vessel to a tugboat. And so, obviously, it, it, it's a lot of vessels that are out there. Now, let me be clear. East Asia, having sailed through there, there's, there is a lot of ships. Right. It is, it is insanely crazy. And the amount of container ships and cargo that comes across is substantial. Uh, there's no denying that. And East Asia is huge. You got to look, uh, Alpha Liner put up their top 30 ports of container ports in the world. The U.S. has three of the top 30. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's Savannah, it's New York, New Jersey, it's L.A. Long Beach. Uh, and, and New York, New Jersey and L.A. Long Beach are, are paired together. But if you look at China, China has seven in the top 10. And, you know, the, the amount of containers that come out of there are just phenomenal. Shanghai handles 47 million containers a year. L.A. handles 10. So, you know, that's just one port of, of, of seven uh, that are in the top 10. And, you know, they provide containers not just obviously to the U.S., but to the rest of the world. 
and their major hub. And so when a port like Shanghai, which didn't close during this recent COVID lockdown, but it has slowed down because of trucking and, 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 and uh, uh, town, you know, the city really locked down. That has ramifications for us because what we're going to see is as they begin to open back up again, that tsunami wave of ships and loaded container ships are going to come flying across at us. So let me, I want to, uh, that's another question I'm getting, I get a lot of too, and I try to explain this and, and maybe it'd be good to put out there. So the lockdowns now that are happening, people kind of look at this and say, you know, look at all these ships, look at them all. They're, they're just sitting there. There's thousands of them, but not that this isn't normal per se, but it's, it's not as a big deal as much as if this many ships were over on our side, when we had a hundred, that was a real problem. The, the flow of this is, can you kind of break down like how this is not just, you know, all these ships aren't just going to us, <laughs> you know what I mean? They're, they're kind of traveling up and down through their own ports and things like that. Correct. Right. So, I mean, when you, you look at this issue and you look at the flow of goods normally as it happens, you know, one of the big things is this is not unusual. I mean, ships are always moving. You, you want this seamless movement of vessels. And one of the things that I think has, has caused the supply chain disruption is what we've had is kind of speed bumps thrown in the road. Right. And, you know, it's like going down the highway, you know, when, when everything's moving well on the highway, you can be jammed bumper to bumper, but you're moving at 60 miles an hour. It's great. But all you need is one accident, one person to hit on their brakes, and all of a sudden you slow everything up. And, and that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing this happen, not just in one place, but in multiple places around the world at the same time. So when China has a lockdown, when all of a sudden Shanghai and Qingdao and, 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 and Taoxing all of a sudden begin to shut down, that has ramifications down the supply chain. It, it, it literally reverberates down weeks later down the supply chain. And the problem was we're still, believe it or not, recovering from COVID in March of 2020. We haven't really shaken that off yet because the way ocean shipping works is ocean shipping, you know, when you hit that button on your phone and you order something, that order has been placed 120 days in advance. You know, that, that good has already been moving for four months based on algorithms and data. They know what you're going to order so that when they start moving that good from that warehouse close to you, it had moved four months prior to that. And what COVID has done is thrown off what we think everybody's going to order. You know, we had norms, we had ideas, but now everything's off. Nobody knows what everyone's going to order everything now. And so everybody's ordering everything so that it's readily available because we live in a world where we have to have it now. You know that we, we got to have it now. I need my drone delivering my thing to my house now. I can't wait. And what that means is we pile more and more crud on the ships and the problem was there's was a lot of ships out there. There's a lot of extra capacity out there. The, the shipping lines had built a lot of big vessels. So there was excess capacity out there and they could suck it up. The problem is the land infrastructure can't grow as fast as a ship. I, you know, I can build you a ship in two years. I can't make a, a highway out of LA Long Beach bigger in less than 10 right. or put a railway in or, or build new distribution centers. And, and the problem we had was shipping grew while the infrastructure didn't keep up with it. And that flow you see right there, believe it or not, the biggest flow is not from Asia to the United States. It's from Asia to Europe. That's the biggest flow. And it's also the most precarious because if you follow that path of ships out of East Asia, it goes through a series of small little what we call choke points, Singapore, the Malacca Straits. The Bab el Mandab at the end of the Red Sea, the Suez Canal, the, the straits between Sicily and North Africa, 
the Straits of Gibraltar, the English Channel, all of those can be closed tomorrow by an incident that we saw with Ever Given. And what Ever Given did was created the biggest backlog in history. We saw you saw images of 400 ships waiting north and south of the canal. What no one ever looked at and they should have been looking at was those wave of ships that were coming in right behind them that were all going to pile up. And more importantly, that were not heading to the ports they needed to be. And literally, it was months. It was almost half a year till the impact of Ever Given was basically subdued within the system. Yeah, and this is because, of course, we the, lots of concerns nowadays, right? And and one is you know food and being able to get goods. And and I, I a lot of times I talk about like the bullwhip effect and things like that. But one of the huge big things is that people talk about is obviously everyone's talking about is food. Now here we are. That is one of our definite higher commodity. We have food, right? It's that's one of the things that we have. And, and I explained that, you know, third world countries and second world countries are going to run on, on fortune would run out before we would run out <laughs> as that in, in regards to food. But it's the other goods that we might not get if these other countries um, don't have food or fuel and things like that, that we depend on. We depend on a lot of other countries to bring us a lot of goods. Correct. Right. And, 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 you know, and it's not just us, it's the entire world economy is, is based on that. You know, it's a great book by a, an author by the name of Mark Levinson, who wrote a book on the container it was called the box, but he wrote another book afterwards called uh, beyond the box, where he talks about the idea of how we've truly become a globalized society. So for example, China, you know, go back, everybody yeah. wants to talk about how much stuff that China exports, but understand China is a larger importer than exporter. They import raw material. They import finished goods. And a lot of the finished goods goes into assembly parts of other goods. And, you know, that's the dependent part of our nature. We, when we created containers, when, when Malcolm McLean back in 1956 came up with this idea of containerization, and remember, he's a truck driver. He's not a shipping guy. He's not an ocean shipper guy. He's a truck driver. And he says, there's got to be a better way to move stuff. And it took 10 years to sell that idea. And when he finally sells the idea and it begins to take hold, his idea was, well, we're just going to ship raw material and, and, and finish goods from point A to point B. That's not the way the system works now. You know, ocean containers don't go more than usually 50 miles from the port where they have to be packed, unpacked, opened and repacked all the time. And when you have these disruptions come in so that, for example, now in China, when you don't have trucks going in and out of Shanghai, that means the bulk carriers, the finished goods that are coming in, those components that are going to go into the iPhones, they're not flowing in. And that means you're going to see not six week delays, but, you know, eight weeks, 10, 12, 15, 18 week delays that, that are magnified across the board. And it, go back to the food issue you talked about, right? We generate our own food. We're good with food. We're pretty good, but we still depend on ocean shipping for a lot of our shipments around the world. And more importantly, other nations do Africa, Middle East, South Asia, if they don't get their food shipments, those are going to cause massive problems. They're going to cause food spikes, which you would think, okay, wait a minute, United States, we grow a lot of food. This should be great for us. We can export wheat. We can export grain. You would think that, except we can't get our exports out of the West Coast ports because the container companies, which we don't control, these, these nine big ones that control 85% of the world's containers, they want to ship empty containers back to Asia because they don't want to take the time to load them with grain, 
right. ship them, ship them to where they need to go, unpack them and then get those empty containers back. What they want to do is ship empty containers so they can pack goods in them and put them on the more profitable trans-Pacific trans-European routes. And so, you know, this has massive ramifications the conflict we're seeing in Russia and Ukraine. We're seeing a, a poor harvest in places like India due to high heat. And that means food's going to be in short supply and that's going to jack up prices. So that we brought up Russia there. So Russia and Ukraine situation. Now, this is something you've talked a lot about also uh, with the conflict. And now it's I think a lot of people they see a lot of the stuff that's going on the ground and things like that. But what's actually more dangerous right now is, in, in my opinion, maybe I'm wrong, is what could possibly happen on the sea in regards to, to the ports and who's taking what stuff that could really set off a bigger conflict quickly, in my opinion. Is that would you concur that or no, I, I, I think you're exactly right, Sage. You know, I did a video where I compared the Black Sea to the Persian Gulf of the 1980s. You know, in the 1980s, you had something called the tanker war. Iran and Iraq went to war for eight years. And one of the fronts in the war was the Persian Gulf. And they took to throwing missiles and bombs at tankers going to Iraq, going to Iran, and then going to neutral countries, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Bahrain. And it pulled us into the conflict eventually in the 1980s, late 1980s. We got sucked into the tanker war. What you're seeing right now is if you look at that map, which is a great one right there on the upper left part there, you see this little group of uh, uh, green little you know dots right there coming. The, those are coming out of uh, Russia. They're coming out of the Kerch Strait, the, the, the strait between uh, uh, Russia and the Crimea and out of ports along the Black Sea. And they're hauling grain. One of the reasons that the Russians went into Ukraine was to s secure that little kind of black sea right there, that little black dot above everything, yeah. which is called the Sea of Azov. It doesn't look like there's any ships in there, but there are a ton of ships in there. They just turned their transponders off because they don't want to get hit by the Ukrainians. And right. one of the things they wanted to do is bring cargo down the Don River, which is like the Mississippi River of Russia and get their grain shipments out. And what they're doing is transloading from smaller vessels to bigger vessels. And so Russian grain is getting out. There's actually allegations, too, that some of that grain that's being loaded out of the Kerch Strait is Ukrainian grain stole by the Russians. And there's a lot of allegations about this. But if you notice in the upper left corner there, you know, where there's a couple of green dots along the top, that's the Ukrainian ports. That's Odessa. That's Nikolaev. That's Kyrsyn. And those are ships that are trapped in there, uh, trapped because the Ukrainians have mined the waters and trapped because the Russians have blockaded the waters. And, you know, on a good month, Russia would export, excuse me, Ukraine would export about 6 million tons of grain. Right now, they're only getting out about a million. They're coming out of the southern Ukrainian ports along the Romanian border with the, on the Danube River. And they're going out in much smaller vessels. So you're missing about 5 million tons of grain coming out of Ukraine every month. And that's grain. Again, it doesn't come to the United States. It goes to Africa. It goes to the Middle East. It goes to uh, South Asia. And what that's going to mean is going to escalate costs. It's going to make food more expensive. It's going to make other countries want to export food to the region because they're going to get more money for it. And it can cause instability in a lot of countries. And the question I have that I keep throwing out there is what if the Russians start throwing missiles, torpedoes, mines at those vessels coming out of the Danube River that have loaded Ukrainian grain and they start hitting them. 
will that provoke the Ukrainians then to hit Russian ships carrying their grain and oil out? And what happens if the Black Sea, south of the Crimea, south of the Sea of Azov, south of the Gulf of Odessa, becomes a shooting gallery? How do we respond to that? Now, the Black Sea is unique because the entrance to the Black Sea is controlled by the Turks under the Montreux Convention. And the Turks can prohibit anybody from entering or leaving the Black Sea. And they have. They've, they've enacted an Article 19, which prevents warships from other nations coming in. Now, there are NATO vessels up on the Black Sea. Turkey, Bulgaria, Romania are NATO nations. But if this expands, there's no telling what happens. I mean, and that's – is that – as a, as a wartime also um, – historian it's almost automatic we would have to then send in if they start doing that and they start hitting ships oil ships and things like that we'd have to go right there's no way we could say well or 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 can we i mean how does that work it's again you know the turks control the straits and the turks aren't happy right now you know they're opposing the admission of ukraine and uh, not ukraine uh, of sweden and finland into nato over ukraine so you know the turks are are always the, the the oddball here They've been excluded from the European Union. So the Turks aren't always the best gauge. We don't know. And you would think, okay, well, if ships start getting hit, it makes sense to send up assets into the area. You know, if those ships off the Danube, which is Romanian waters too, if they get hit, is that an Article 5 issue, which is an attack on a NATO nation? Do you have that? You can do a lot of escorting from the shore with helicopters, with aviation assets, but the, the Russians have a fleet of kilo submarines, these diesel electric submarines, which are some of the best submarines in the world. They're black holes in the ocean. They're really hard to detect. And what happens when all of a sudden they start hitting ships or laying mines? I don't know. It, it gets to be, you know, we've seen the Ukrainians sink the Russian flagship, the Moskova. We right. saw them attack the uh, uh, their own port when Russian ships were in it, uh, when they were using them for logistics. And we've seen them, you know, fight over Snake Island. Snake Island is only 15 miles from the Danube River. And, you know, these ships are basically loading and unloading within the shadow of Snake Island. It's one of the reasons why you're seeing such a concentrated effort by the Ukrainians to neutralize the Russians on that island. So when, okay, this is this is interesting too, because at what point then... Um, do you think this, I mean, is that it? Is that the, the fire starter? Are they almost at the point of, because they're, they're, they're hitting each other's ships at ports, right? Um, the Russian ship was actually hit at port, correct? Right. The, and, and again, you know, one of the reasons that the Russians have undertaken this operation is to secure the Sea of Azov. One of the things that we've seen the Russians doing since 2008, actually, is, is when they invaded Georgia, is try to secure their access to and from ports along the Black Sea. Back in 2014, when they took Crimea, that big peninsula that juts out from the north right there, they did that because they wanted to ensure that their ships coming down the Don River out of the port of Rostov was able to get out. But Mariupol, Berdansk, all these ports on the northern side of the Sea of Azov were able to interdict Russian ships. And we saw that at the beginning of the war. So, you know, you had the Ukrainians hitting Russian ships, the Russians hitting Ukrainian ships. Now, the Russians have said, hey, listen, you know, we'll, we'll open up corridors so that you can get grain out of Ukraine. The problem is the Ukrainians have mined the waters. Well, I, I got to say, number one, no one is sailing a ship into the Gulf of Odessa because, okay. number one, uh, there's no one going to insure a vessel to go in. And if you can't get insurance for a vessel, 
no one's going to sail it in there, let alone what crew members are going to be willing to do this. You know, it's just, it's a non-starter. And even if you have the Russians guarantee, listen, we promise, we pinky swear, we're not going to attack you. And the Ukrainians sit there and say, okay, we've cleared the mines out to Odessa. Come on up. You have floating mines. There's just too much risk involved. And you've already seen ships hit. You've seen mariners killed. There was a Bangladesh ship that was hit in a port. A crew member was killed. The, the Russians grabbed an Estonian-owned vessel, used it as a as a basically a, a, a shield up in the Gulf of Odessa. It got either hit by a mine or a missile. It sank. Two of its crew members were killed. You know, nobody's taking good faith here to, to do this. And so whatever happens here is going to have to require some sort of 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 interdiction i literally just finished a video where I, I said okay you know we're we're in the tom hanks scenario here what which which tom hanks movie are we in are we are are, are, are we in castaway where we're stranded and we can't get the grain out of the port are we in captain phillips where the crew is going to be grabbed by you know are they going to be attacked and do we need the navy to come to their sol solution or is this greyhound and we're just going to run a convoy through and 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 battle the uh the u-boats to do it and so I, i'm not sure i'm not sure where we're at right now i think you might have just invented the tom hanks effect we don't know which <laughs> we have the butterfly effect we have the tom hanks effect we don't know which one uh, you you should coin that so and that's also a good point is at 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 what point if i'm purchasing goods do i say no thank you no thank you i i can't purchase the goods anymore because i don't know if it's not going to get out or not going to make it to where and now i'm out the money because you, you just said they're not insuring it, you know, so you now have people, you know, buyers, let's just say that are saying, I'll wait, I'll get it. You know, I can't, I can't buy, I can't buy. So that was another aspect that, you know, a lot of people need to be ma made aware of was buyers might not even be buying the good, the, the wheat and stuff because they can't be insured. Well, and you know, th there was a talk, you know, I was really, you know, I've been watching this happen, you know, and back in January, I wrote a piece where I talked about the potential of this happening, you know, when, when, when it was initially, we were talking about this and I said, you know, listen, wheat and grain, wheat, grain, and, and, and liquefied natural gas and gasoline are commodities. And people really don't care where they come from. They just need them. I mean, we're talking about resources. We're talking about bare necessities here. And I remember reading these pieces that were coming out by some big, you know, journalists in the field. And I was really shocked by them because they sit there and said, you know, well, you know, you know, we're going to sanction oil. We're going to sanction gas. We're going to say, you know, you know, prices, you know, no one's going to buy the Russian stuff because the Russians are being bad guys. But what do we see? We see even though we talk about sanctions, the European Union isn't sanctioning Russian oil because Greece is not going to let it happen because the Greek economy is geared toward shipping and they need Russian oil to go on their vessels. And same thing with the wheat, you know, the North Africans, the East Africans, the Middle East, the South Asia, they don't care where they're buying wheat from. India is buying wheat like crazy, uh, buying fuel like crazy from right. Russia right now. China is, you know, all they're seeing is securing their resources and their assets. And as long as they're getting out, they're going to be able to sell them. And that's the problem here. As you create divots in the world supply, like grain, for example, you're going to force countries to buy other sources and they really don't care where they're from because we're not talking about niceties here. We're talking about survival. We're talking about food and bread, you know, and so they're going to buy them. And that creates this very unique geopolitical asset aspect here where all of a sudden now, you know, we're talking to Iran and Venezuela about getting crude oil for yeah. our refineries. It's like, okay, you know, which, which, which state is the least, 
<laughs> offensive that we can get this from. You know, we're not having a discussion about, you know what the issue is? Refineries. You know, why is diesel costing $6 a gallon in New York and New England? It's not because there's a diesel shortage. It's, it's nothing to do with a diesel shortage. It's because we have a refinery shortage. Yeah, I want to that. We, we, we hadn't built a refinery in the United States since 1977. You know, 50% of the diesel capacity has diminished. And, you know, what's amazing is I, I, I saw a piece come out the other day and I got on it with the with the author of it. And I said, listen, you're listening to, 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 to oil brokers. Oil brokers make money by selling oil to the highest bidder. That's what they do. And so, for example, diesel fuel, which had been stockpiled up in New England and New York, was being sent out from New York and New England to Europe. Why? Because it was a heck of a lot more expensive. And so they were depleting those stocks. It's the fastest voyage from New York and, and New England to Europe. They don't want to pull it out of the Gulf of Mexico. That's a long voyage. You got to pay extra charter fee fees for that. I'd much rather pull from stocks up in New York and New England. What, does, what, what happens as a result of that? New York and New England are having shortages. And, right. and you know, you're seeing things like, for example, the Colonial Pipeline. You're hearing this issue that, listen, the Colonial Pipeline's not moving diesel. That's because brokers don't want to put diesel fuel into the Colonial Pipeline. It takes 18 days to move a gallon of fuel from Houston, Texas to New Jersey by the pipeline. It, it Basically, it, it jogs from Houston to New York. You know, that's the way it moves through the pipeline. But they don't want to do that because what happens if, if diesel prices plummet? And now all of a sudden my diesel fuel is stuck in the pipeline when I could have put that on a tanker and sent it overseas somewhere more expensive. And, you know, what you do and what I do is really try to make this accessible to people who don't understand it. It's very easy to sit there and and to look at an issue like high diesel fuel and sit there and say, well, you know, this this is because of this problem. And the issue is, no, it's much more complex. But let me kind of unveil it to you and show you what's really going on here. Yeah, and this is a couple of things because I get this all the time. It's like, why is the East Coast? Why is the East Coast? And it a, a lot of it's a logistical problem. It's it's not a fact that we don't have it. It's we can't get it from here to here. <laughs> and then the other problem is obviously supply and demand. People want to make money. Let's just be honest, right? I, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to use the the G word, but let's be honest. It's there's supply and demand. So kind of explain that because uh, uh, one of the questions I had is. Well, one, we got to go into the Jones Act, obviously. Um, and then two, how many ships do U.S. ships do we have to be able to do the Jones Act? If you want to break that down for us. Sure. So uh, Jones Act, this is a law passed in 1920, and it's known as the Merchant Marine Act. And it's been reaffirmed multiple times since then. And basically what it was, was it was a huge kind of what I call a national maritime strategy. It was the, really what happened in World War One is we don't get into World War One right away. You know, what do we care about an archduke getting assassinated? Not our problem, you know, you know, and, and matter of fact, what we did is we sat out of the war for three years because we saw a golden opportunity to make money. It's like, hey, we'll be neutral. Neutral's great. We'll sell to both sides and then we'll trade you money and sell goods. It's fantastic. You know, uh, only to have a policy like that today. And and. <laughs> What happened was the problem with it was a lot of our shipping, especially our international shipping, was dependent on foreign ships, much like today, the British, the Germans, the Italians, the French, the Dutch. And what happened is when Warwick happened, a lot of that ships left. You know, the British went to go support the war effort. The Germans had to flee the high seas. And we had to transition our coastal fleet into an international fleet. Now, fortunately, we had a big coastal fleet. And after 19, after World War I, once we got into World War I, we realized, man, we really need to make sure we have 
ships on both coastal and international trade. So we passed this law. And it still exists today, but mainly it ensures that there are U.S. built, U.S. flagged, U.S. owned, and U.S. crewed tankers in the U.S. market. And we use that to move goods around. Now, obviously, we don't have as many of them before for a variety of reasons. Some, some, there are some critics who will come out and say, the reason for the fall of the Merchant Marine is the Jones Act. At which point I always sit there and say, well, great. Well, Britain had the largest Merchant Marine in the world. They're 22. You know, the Dutch had a huge one. They're below that. The, the, the French are below that. The Italians are below that. The Germans are below that. They don't have the Jones Act. Why do they, where are they below it? And we have a, we have a Jones Act largely because we want to protect our infrastructure. We want to protect shipbuilding. And because we need a lot of that material for us in time of war and to support the Navy. So this story that recently came out, and, and again, I, the author is great. I love the author who wrote this story. I, I think he's fantastic. But the, the issue is a complex one. And if you don't understand the intricacies of it, it's easy to get mixed. And so we don't have as many tankers as we used to because we have things like the Colonial Pipeline. We don't need to haul oil there. But there are some places that aren't connected to the pipeline. Florida, uh, uh, New England, you know, all because, by the way, let me be clear about something. I'm from New York originally, and I hope that doesn't offend anybody. I'm from but, New York. But, but from New York originally, New York is a pain in the butt. Because New York won't allow the pipeline to go across New York into New England. I think it all has to do with baseball. It's Red Sox. I'm telling you right now. It's 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 it's, it's the it's the Red Sox and Tom Brady. The reason you people in New England suffer from loss of gas in the wintertime is Tom Brady. I want you all to know that. I'm a huge Giants fan. Sorry. Uh, but but so to fill those gaps, you have tankers, you know, and, and the tankers bring either refined oil product gasoline diesel or they bring crude oil up to patrol up to refineries because guess what crude oil doesn't go through the pipelines it's just refined products and what you've had up in new york and new england is number one a 50 percent 50 percent reduction in refinery capacity in that area if you remember back uh, years ago there was a big huge fire in philadelphia yeah. refinery fire they didn't rebuild and then other refineries have closed. And, and for a variety of reasons, all you can imagine, EPA, it, it, it's expensive. Nobody wants a refinery next to their house. It's not a great smell. But you know what you want is cheap gas and cheap diesel fuel. But when you lose that refinery capacity, you lose the ability to get that. And you know today, we have tankers that can meet this, this need. The problem is these brokers and these oil companies, they want to get away from American tankers because they're more expensive. They're more expensive. Listen, for you, you know, your salary is more expensive. My salary is more expensive than someone doing the same job in the Philippines. Right now, there's, you know, two guys from the Philippines hosting their YouTube show. And, you know, we, we can get them in here and they could probably do it for a lot cheaper than we do it. Right. Uh, and, and it's just because of cost of living. But what they want to do is run out those American tankers, those American firms. And so they scream Jones Act all the time. When in truth, right now, because of the way the market is, an American tanker is actually almost the same cost. And more importantly, they're here on the coast. They're ready to go. But they want to scream these, these, these Jones Act waivers. And because they think, now listen, when there's no American ships available, I am the first one to sit there and say, let's bring in some foreign tankers. Right. Let's do it. But right now they are available. But, but the brokers and the oil companies are setting this up so that they're creating the situation that makes them scream we need help. And, and they're the create, they're the ones that create largely created the problem that we're seeing right now. Yeah. And it's, it, cause it, and it's been, it hasn't been a new thing since 2012, there was a report that came out and said, Hey, if we don't upgrade refineries, if we don't do something, 
uh, we're in trouble here on the East Coast. So it wasn't something that wasn't known that wasn't going to happen. It was just something that nobody either paid attention to or they just said, ah, we're fine. Uh, we're not. <laughs> you know, and that's that's the irony is, is there's so many times these issues have been identified. It's just they're not worked upon. You know, I did a video where I, I looked at a Federal Maritime Commission report from 2015 that mm -hmm. literally identified every issue with the supply chain problem in the ports. I mean, literally, I read this thing not too long ago. I did a video on it. I read this thing. It's like, holy crud. It's like, it's like, yep, that's an issue. Yep, that's an issue. That's an issue. And it's like, ding, 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 all these issues. And man, we just didn't do a lot to act about it. The one place that did is the port of Long Beach. And that's because the author of the report, who was on the Federal Maritime Commission, went and became the port director at the port of Long Beach. And he's enacted a lot of the things you needed to do to make those changes. And, you know, again, you know, one of the things I think you do really well, and I, I try to do, and I don't know if you succeed in doing it, is, is raise these issues up and talk about them. Because, again, you know, we're busy people. People don't understand this. It's a complex issue, logistics and shipping and, 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 and trucking and, and, and ships. And so what we try to do all the time is make this accessible to them so people understand it so that they can sit there and go, listen, this is a problem and you need to know about it. Sorry, dogs shaking in the background. Oh, absolutely. So and this is it. I think what frustrates me the most is like where they do this reports. They ask for these reports. Congress or somebody asks for some. Hey, we need a report on this or thing on this. And then they get it and then they sit on it. And it's like. I don't know if there's there's needs to be. I think it was a uh, uh, was Craig Fuller from from Fre uh, from Freightways basically said, look, we need a specific person in government that is supply chain czar <laughs> that basically says we, you guys need to because it's a complicated business. It's not easy and it ripples turn into you know tidal waves. Um, but where why do you not think things are? Is it always money or is it just that they don't understand the the emphasis on it. Well, let's be clear about a couple of things. So number one, like for example, with shipping, you're hearing a lot of attacks on shipping right now. Oh, it's a, it's, it's cartel. It's the alliances. Even I just talked about it, but also understand too, we benefited greatly from it. We had really low freight rates. I mean, God, it costs almost nothing to ship stuff across the Pacific prior to 2019. And that's because if you look at the profitability of the container liners, they were, they were, they were underbidding each other. They were competing against each other. It was great. It was fantastic. It was pure capitalism. It's what you love. You know, it's like, it's like, you know, dog eat dog. We saw container lines collapse and, 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 and go away. But the problem you have now is listen, now they've consolidated. Now they're bigger than ever before. Right. And, and, and now they're making better profits than ever before. And now everyone's like, huh, maybe what happens if they start colluding a little bit and price fixing, you know, are they going to want to go back to the period when they were barely making a profit when just last quarter, the top 10 companies made almost $60 billion in profit. That's more than Facebook, than, 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 you know, uh, uh, Netflix, than Google, than all the big, you know, tech groups did. And, you know, that's where you want that. And, I think one of the issues is visibility. You just have to, you know, I don't want government coming in and fixing everything because God knows government can't fix a lot of things. <laughs> you know, it, they just really can't. But what I want from them is visibility. I want to be able to raise these issues up. Let's put some transparency out there because they should be representing us and, and airing this kind of stuff out there. You know, I always talk about the fact that if you look at 
his secretary of transportation, the department of transportation, doesn't matter who, what administration it is, what secretary there is. Right. They should have the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They should have a czar of maritime, a czar of air, of rail and road. And they should all be equal. And they should be the ones raising the issues. This is what we need to be addressing. And here's the potential issues in the future. And the problem is they're not the same. The head of the FAA is not the same as the head of the Maritime Administration. It's not the same as the railway. And it's not the same as the trucking. You know, I, you know, ever since this has happened, I've learned more about trucking than ever before. Mm-hmm. And what a crappy way we treat truckers in this country. I mean, just absolutely abhorrent. I see the videos of the truckers waiting in line at the ports. The yeah. fact that they can't use bathrooms. It's like, holy, are we running a second class citizenship here right. for people who are so essential for our transportation? And, you know, we should think that our transportation should be so vital to us that it should happen seamlessly. Why are we just passing infrastructure reform now? We should be doing this every year, talking about this and and investing in this because it's so vital to us. But we as a country tend to wait until, you know, the, the excrement hits the fan. And, you know, that's the thing I did with Ever Given, you know, because all too often maritime disasters are just that. That's all they focus on. What I try to do is skew them toward, okay, let's talk about why this is important, what we should be right. thinking about, what we should be looking at. You know, I, I really don't appreciate, I have some of my old classmates tell me, you know, you're the face of maritime disaster now. <laughs> I, I don't think, you know, I, I, I don't enjoy that title at all, but if it gets my ten- it gets me to get out there in front of people to talk about these issues and raise them, I'll, I'll take it, I guess. Yeah, because it, it's come a long way. Like Maritime's come a long way and and with technology, right? Knowing when ships are gonna come. It's it's so for trucks to be sitting at the port and it's sitting in line, not knowing where this is, not knowing where that is. It's at this point with technology, there's no excuse for that. Right? No, there isn't. You know, I, I think I think we're all spoiled, you know, because most people's idea of transportation is is Amazon, it's it's whatever app you use where you can track your product coming to you. You know, I get a note on my phone. Hey, Amazon's 10 houses away from you. You know, it's going to come. Here's a picture of it delivered to your door. You know, we're used to that. You know, as well as I do, man, that is not freight. That's not the way it works. No, you know, there's a bill of lading. There's probably a fax machine churning out something somewhere right now where how your good is being moved. And we're not putting the, the visibility, the money into those areas that they need to go in. And, you know, I hate to say it, but a lot of it has to do with government oversight in some ways, because we're not requiring visibility. We're not requiring it. You know, I do shipping. I do ocean shipping all the time. The, the, the site, the government site that had the best visibility on ocean shipping wasn't the maritime administration. It wasn't the federal maritime commission. It was the department of agriculture. Yeah. Why? Because the Department of Agriculture sits there and says, we care about this because we got to get our goods out. So we're going to track container ships. We're going to track bulk ships. We're going to track oil tankers. And, and it's like, wow, that's that's so true. Again, I used this analogy recently, and I'm going to uh, this is the one I need to coin. Mal, uh, Malcolm McLean, who who is the father of containerization, got you his first container ship was called the Ideal X. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Malcolm McLean is Elon Musk and SpaceX of the 1950s. You know, what Musk is doing right now, he's doing with space. You know, SpaceX is not a viable economic system right now. Right. But 10, 20 years from now, it will be. And he knows that. And that's what McLean did with containerized shipping. And the guy who fixes or the person who fixes ocean shipping wasn't an ocean shipping guy. It was a truck driver. Mm-hmm. And what we need to do is focus on the freight and the cargo 
that's how we fix these things. Yeah, and I think that's what it's lost is, is I say logistics has got to be one of the largest industries in the world, right? It's huge. Uh, so many aspects of it. And yet we we don't look at it like that. <laughs> Sometimes we just a lot of people just look at where's my where the heck is my delivery? Well, you, you know, in the whole process. But it's just one of those things that if you don't understand it, it's so large of an industry that it's hard for one person to be in charge of that. So you're right. It needs to be four people that can come together and say, okay, I can do this. What can you do? Right. And just to have that information out there, you know, like right now, I'll give you a perfect example. Sage, you know, one of the things we talked about is we're dumping, you know, several billion dollars into port infrastructure mm -hmm. because in the way we do ports in this country is weird because it's, it's just the way it's, it's been created. So the waters are controlled by the federal government, but the ports are state and local. So, you know, it's the it's the city of L.A. that controls the port of L.A. And, and they they lease out space to terminals in in Savannah. It's Georgia. You know, in Virginia, it, in Norfolk, it's Virginia. You know, in New York, New Jersey, it's the Port Authority. It's two states together working it. And, you know, we, we, we give this billion dollars of port infrastructure. And basically what it is, it's a huge trough of money. And these ports are putting in proposals and the government looks at them and it's like, okay, that sounds like a good idea. Here's your money. Go, go do it. There's no plan. There's no strategy. For example, should we have four big ports for our containers? Should we go with a four corner strategy? Should we go with LA, Long Beach, Houston, Savannah, New York, New Jersey, big, four big ports. That's the plan. Or should we be sitting there saying, you know what? That's probably not a great plan. We probably need diffuse ports. We probably need, medium-sized ports are better because if, if something happens to one, you have the other ones. You know, do you want everything going into LA and Long Beach? Or maybe we should be talking about LA Long Beach, Oakland, Seattle, Tacoma, and maybe a future to be named port developed. Hmm. Where's that discussion? Where where's that discussion that's going on? You know, you know, we seem to build roads as needed. The problem with building roads is people will come, you know, and and so are you building in dares? Is it a good idea to invest more money in the port of LA and Long Beach? Because <laughs> I've driven LA and Long Beach. I've been in there. You know, you, you, if you bring more ships in there, you're not getting the cargo out faster. I mean, let's put a port in the worst traffic in the world. You know, is that the smartest idea that we have? And yeah. Again, it, it's it's what what's the concept that we're using to develop our strategy going forward? Yeah, because it's almost like I want to hire the best Tetris player and send him over to the Long Beach and say, okay, play the game of Tetris with these cans and tell me how we can do this better because right. we're organized here. <laughs> I mean, but, but again, Long Beach did that. They created this new terminal, the LBCT terminal. It's taken them 10 years to do it. And that terminal is twice as productive as any other terminal in LA and Long Beach. And what's the amazing thing about it? It has automation, but it's automation that doesn't displace workers. You actually need new workers in there because you're moving more cargo. And, and you know, we have to have this discussion. We have to have these kind of debates about it. But the problem, again, is this is commercial. The commercial guys are going to put in as much money as they need to get by with what they have. And they were geared to 1%, 2% growth fluctuations. The problem we've had with COVID is we've had huge fluctuations right. and that's what causes your disruptions. Yeah. Consistency. Logistics likes consistency. When we don't have it, it, it doesn't like it. It's very bad for, for logistics. And that's why analytics comes in because it gives us, allows that consistency. When that breaks, it's not a good site. So I, I did want to talk about something else too, because a lot of now people are now concerned in regards to um, China and Taiwan and things like that. 
And that would definitely be a big, and let me, um, let's go back to here. Let's go back to my cheat sheet um, and add this one to it. Let's see. Hold on. There we go. So some of the stuff that obviously this is China and then, one of the big things that people don't under, well, I want to make sure people understand, and I try to show them is freedom of navigation through the uh, China Sea, right? They they are building some of these islands are now, uh, well, according to China, their property, <laughs> their domain. Hey, we, you know, we put our flag on this and we put some sand on it and we started building on it. And I usually go back and I say, okay, let me explain to you why this is so important. And then I say, okay, here's your cargo ships coming through here. And now if this is China, they have a right to this area and patrol this area. And it becomes, um, you know, the 12 miles from, you know, uh, of the uh, water and stuff. And then you have tankers coming through here also. And this is also all they'd have to do is slow this stuff down by boardings to cause a ruckus. If, if if they were to control this and take this over. So there are, I, I kind of wanted to go over like from shore, what all, all you know, the, uh, the easy zone and, and everything like that. How important even them taking the Solomon Islands, you know, with a security deal in regards to our logistics. And if they do take more of this, that's a big deal in regards to if they take Taiwan, let alone if they don't. Right. And so this goes back to China's, you know, what is China out to do? What's their immediate objective? And and I, I understand the military issue. And there's a lot of concerns about China wanting to invade Taiwan due to Taiwan, what Russia is doing to Ukraine. And I have a, a different perspective on it a little bit. You know, China is economic. It is it is all about securing resources and trade around the world. So if you look at their development in the South China Sea, if you look at them developing a base in Djibouti, if you look at them talking about developing a base in West Africa, and now their development into the South Pacific, one of the things that they are doing is securing routes for trade, both imports and exports all the time. And China realizes more than probably any other nation on the planet how susceptible they are to that's a great one because that's oil tankers. That's showing fuel going through. And all you need to do is pinch the trade coming through either the Malacca Straits, the Singapore Straits, or the South China Sea, and you create a massive disruption heading to Asia, uh, heading to China, for example. And, you know, I, I actually think one of the things that China worries more than anything else is not about us, the United States, but they worry about other players interdicting them, Vietnam, Singapore, India. Those are the ones that have the potential to cause the biggest disruptions to them. We can too, don't get me wrong, but they need us. They need us for trade. They need it to sell goods to us. Same thing with Europe. They need Europe. The problem is countries that they're competitors with, that they have rivalries with, which we've seen with India, with Vietnam, with Singapore and other countries, Japan, Korea, those are the potentials that really drive them crazy. And what they want to do is ensure there are other routes. You know, if you can't get through the South China Sea, for example, then you have to dog around the Philippines and go out through the Lombok Strait or, or uh, the, the Makassar Straits, uh, or better yet, you may need to dog all the way around Australia, which means you got to go through the Solomons to go do that. Or maybe go south of uh, of of uh, the 
Tierra del Fuego, do the Drake Passage, or through the Panama Canal, or conceivably through the Arctic. Why, why is China building icebreakers? It's because they want to be able to develop the Arctic routes if they need to. China is always about securing their trade route. If you look at what Belt and Road was, mm-hmm. it's about doing it. You know, the strangest player on the Black Sea right now is China. And you wouldn't think that for a second. But because of the sanctions against Russia, China has developed a huge European Asian railway system. They've they've funded a massive expansion of the Europe Asian railway system. They are moving railway cars from Shanghai to Germany, to Rotterdam. And that was disrupted due to Russia, because now with Russia and sanctions going across, they're not taking railway cars coming out of Russia into places like Poland, the the Baltic states. So what's China doing? They're sending it down to the Black Sea coast. And now that cargo is being loaded, you know, onto vessels at Nova Risk, sailing across the Black Sea to Romania and Bulgaria to be reintroduced onto the railway system. And, you know, it's the craziest idea that you may see the Chinese Navy on the Black Sea ensuring the free passage of vessels. But that's where China is going. You know, China is not building bases for expansion for out there. They're out there to protect their their trade routes. Why are they in Djibouti? That's the southern end of the Red Sea. That's that's a key point where they can ensure that the Suez Canal, the Bab el Mandab, that straight right there you're showing, the, the area just south of India, why are they investing in, in Sri Lanka? Because Sri Lanka is right there next to India. They, they are very economically driven. They have probably read Alfred Thayer Mahan's The Influence of Sea Power better than the U.S. Navy has. And they understand that the, the key to sea power isn't just having a big navy like we have. It's having the economic resources and the fleet to move your goods. And I think that's something we've fundamentally forgotten. Again, our Navy is number one in the world. Our Merchant Marine is 21. Mm. China's Navy is number two in the world. Their Merchant Marine is number two in the world. They they realize this. And, and that's their play all the time. And if you look at Taiwan, for example, example, they are economically tying Taiwan to China, much like they did with Hong Kong prior to that. Who's building Evergreen ships? Evergreen is the biggest container liner in Taiwan. They're being built in China. They're being serviced in China. You know, the the Taiwanese companies have routes that go to mainland China. The second biggest container alliance in the planet is the Chinese national line, Costco. It's Evergreen shipping, and it's the French line, CMA, CGM. And they are out there rivaling the big one, 2M, which is Maersk and Mediterranean shipping. So basically, they're more make sure they're more interested in making sure they get their goods in than their goods out per se. They need the goods in, and they're they're protecting. So a lot of the military, let's say, well, they're not military bases, but it just so happens the draft of their container ships are the same as their military ships. Um, so if they go as a container ship, they can bring in military ships. But they're more interested in making sure they can get all their goods in, either being food or energy or what raw materials to be able to be the Amazon of the world. So. They're, they understand that aspect. So our Navy is basically there to keep the flow of ships, basically, also. I mean, that's the strength of our Navy right now with China. Isn't protection that they're going to, you know, but making sure that they don't say, ah, you can't have this if it's going this way or going to the, you know, heading to our way. Is that correct? 
Right. There's a great book by an author by the name of Bruce Jones who wrote a book called To Rule the Ways, where he talks about the fact that probably the nation that's the great that that has benefited the most from the U.S. Navy's freedom of the seas has been China, you know, because they have actually been able to benefit from that. You know, they don't have to send their Navy out to basically convoy and patrol as much. You know, where where's the Chinese Navy at? They're coastal. They're they're basically regional. And where they do do overseas deployments is to the Red Sea and the East Coast of Africa, where there's piracy, where there's attacks against shipping. And, you know, th they have benefited from this greatly. They believe that their Navy should be an ancillary to their merchant. Whenever I hear someone from the Navy sit there and say, well, you know, the Chinese Navy is a regional Navy. They don't have any, you know, blue water global experience. Their merchant marine does. Their merchant marine is everywhere. Right now, there are Chinese ships in American ports right now offloading all the time. You know, and and they they have they've got that reach out there, and what they're always worried about is what happened to them in the mid twentieth century. If you look at what happened to China by Japan in the lead up to World War II, they were strangled by Japan. You know, Japan came in, they seized their ports along the coast, right. they then severed their supply line overseas, they cut the Burma Road, you know, and and they tried to economically strangle China out. And how did we defeat Japan in World War II? We, 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 we had a war that started because we cut Japan off from oil and natural resources. That led them to invade Southeast Asia. And then the way we defeated them was by basically Operation Strangulation. We, we cut them off. We blockaded them and we starved them out. And they eventually surrendered. Yeah, atomic bombs and bombing and all that other element is involved there. But basically, they realized their civilization was going to die unless they did something. And the Japanese civilization was on the precipice of being destroyed in World War II. China's aware of that. They don't want that to happen. And so they're doing a lot of things to ensure their trade. And that's the thing we miss a lot. We're not watching the Chinese application of soft power, you know, of going in and getting those agreements for resources, for ports, for road construction. You know, they are going in and just hammering African and Asian countries, South American countries. They're doing this really effectively. And what they're doing is ensuring their supplies, their resources, and their markets for the future. China has huge problems. They have huge problems going up. They, they, they had this one-child policy, now, which is now biting them in the butt because they don't have enough young people to sustain the older people. Right. And this is why you hear a lot about what's happening with COVID in China, that they're trying to cull their older population. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what's happening. Right. And China has a lot of issues associated with this. Yeah, because I, I mean, it, I remember, you know, talking to people and, and, and I would do a class. And one of the things I would tell them is I said, you know, wealth is built with a road. You know, you, that road is what wealth is built on. Somebody then was able to go someplace, start trading, start making things and start doing that. So it, it started with that logistics. And it just seems like they understand the importance of that aspect. Everything from the East Indian uh, Company to, you know, they're like, OK, I got this. We can do this. We're just going to do it our way. What where does this lead with the lockdowns that are happening? And it's, you know, and it's not as much as the shipping ports, but it's the getting the goods there. Where does that place them? Like, why would they do, in your opinion, obviously, why would they continue to do the lockdowns if this is so important? Well, I, I think, number one, it's, it's hard to tell. I, I mean, I, I just, you know, again, what the Chinese do is, is, is right. it, it, it's a hard read. You know, 
Uh, you know, you've been following along with with Madeline Walchko on board the President Wilson and the story of that ship and being stuck in the shipyard in Shanghai and how that was mid-March when all of a sudden the workers walked off and, and now they're stuck in the shipyard and they're just now getting workers back on board, you know, in mid-May, you know, two months later. And, you know, is this their policy for, you know, is this how they avoided uh, uh, COVID? I don't know. It, it, it's it, it's hard to fathom. This is the danger that Craig Fuller over at Freight Waves did in that great piece he talked about right. where he thinks that China is trying to manipulate the system, that they're trying to do it. You know, when China had the lockdowns earlier last year and in the 2020, it wasn't as big of an influence because we were locked down. Trade was being disrupted anyway. What China is doing now is disrupting world trade. They, they are doing this. And this is one of the reasons why Craig is calling for, you know, getting out, you know, this decoupling from China. You know, we should be trading with countries that are more like us in terms of their economics, their capitalism, their, 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 their governments, everything. Because, again, China is really pushing the buttons here. They're controlling it. And when you look at that balance of how much trade comes out of China. Again, you know, you look at those number of ports and the amount of containers they move. It's crazy. It's just out of proportion. And it's one of the reasons why you see backlogs in our ports. It's not just because we have poor infrastructure and our infrastructure can't keep up. It's just the volumes coming across are, are just China can move goods more efficiently than we can. But even amidst lockdowns, they're still moving goods. You know, it's not that the ports have shut down. It's it's just they've slowed down just a little bit. And I, I'm not exactly sure what is the end game they're trying to do. Are they trying to slow the economic system down? Because, again, growth is a big problem for them because they've got to keep that growth going at all times. You know, it's that great story that uh, she told uh, the second President Bush. The thing that keeps me up at night is finding jobs for how many billion people, right. you know, every day, you know, I got to keep my, 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 my population employed. And, you know, I, I think we find ourselves sucked into this manner. Are we decoupling? Are we shifting manufacturing back to the U S I don't know. I, I think it's a real hard sell to do that. I think my big fear is we're decoupling from China, but now we're coupling to other nations. You know, we're moving to Vietnam, we're moving to the Philippines or South America or Central America. And it really still creates that same problem we have. It's just a different government in a different locale. Yeah. And I think it's and I see it as, you know, it is that bullwhip effect. They are literally bullwhipping us. You know, you, you pull it back and then things pull back and jobs go and then you throw it at us. And next thing you know, inflation goes up because we, you know, I cost me more to get a truck moved from here to there. And it's it's that constant like I've talked about logistics hates these ups and downs it has to be consistent because it affects you know everything from inflation to everything else so i mean where are the prices and i, I won't keep you much longer but where are the 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 prices in regards to shipping i mean insurance has to be affecting them fuel has to be affecting them um where where is that kind of coming into play right well i think all of those factors are coming fuel is the big one obviously we're we're seeing escalations of rates you know everybody was talking about are we going to get down freight rates are freight rates going to come down and, and the answer is no number one the companies aren't going to let them come down they're going to enjoy these profits they're more consolidated they're in alliances that's not going to happen but when you add fuel on top of this the higher fuel costs 
that are associated with this, that's a big problem. And again, one of the things we're seeing in ocean shipping is this change toward decarbonization. You know, you have the IMO, the International Maritime Organization, making this argument that, listen, we need to be, you know, 50% reduction in carbon emissions by 2050. Yeah. But there are people who are pushing even more of that. You, you got the port of LA and Shanghai talking about the idea of creating a carbon zero zone on ships coming from Shanghai to LA. That is insane. I mean, I don't know how they're going to pull that off. I don't know what that's going to do to raise costs associated with it. And, you know, we're just seeing these other elements and understand that the new technology in propelling vessels, whatever fuel or systems we use, hybrid, hydrogen, ammonia, uh, uh, you know, whatever, uh, uh, green ethanol, fusion power. I don't know. I don't know what we're going to use. Sales. Yeah, well, they are using sales. Remember, I just did a story on that the other day that that there's a company uh, shipping coffee on zero carbon emission footprint. They grow it with zero carbon emissions. They put it on a sail vessel and they ship it over and there's zero emissions on it. Now, of course, when it gets in the United States, it's put on a truck and there you go. So, so much for that. And it, plus your coffee maker at home is running off a coal plant probably somewhere. But, but it, it's this idea of, you know, well, it's a great idea. It's fantastic. But how are we going to sustain that? And, and especially today, you know, ships produce the least amount of pollution to move a ton of cargo. The problem you have is, yes, you move, you know, you produce whatever, three grams of, 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 of carbon per right. ton. But the problem is when your ship comes in with 200,000 tons of cargo on board because you're in these mega container ships, you're dumping a huge amount of carbon in a very small area at one time. And oh, by the way, your 20,000 boxes now have to be picked up by 20,000 tractor trailers or trains. And that causes a problem. Right. Maybe we should start planting trees on ships. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> maybe that'll help. Uh, th that being said, uh, I wanted to end this one here. Like I said, I, I, I love the fact you came out. I really appreciate it. Uh, any final, any final words you want to give to the fans? No, listen, I appreciate being with you, Sage. You know, I, I apologize for being not with you back sooner and everything. You know, schedule's been a bit crazy. Beyond my job with YouTube, I, I do have a teaching job. So, But now it's summertime. It's great. I can focus on this, and uh, it's always a pleasure to be with you. And again, you know, for your fans, too, come on over to What's Going On With Shipping and everything. I'll send my, my, my uh, subscribers over to you, too, uh, to get that trucking and logistics side from the shore. Absolutely. Uh, Maz, you want to drop his link? It, it is pinned at the top. Uh, if you guys want to click on that and hook him up like a tow truck. I appreciate you coming out. And so now there's no excuse. You heard him say it. There's no excuse for him not to come on again because his, his, his schedule's clear and it's summer. I've got that recorded um, so he can't get back out. No, I do appreciate you coming on. So that being said, uh, we're going to sign off. See ya. <laughs>